All right, tonight uh, the lectionary takes us into the Gospel of John. We're in uh, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And it is a story that I, I'm sure you've heard before, um, but I want to give you a little bit of context just in, in the book in general because we haven't been going through the Gospel of John. Uh, we've been in Luke, uh, and then the lectionary jumps over to John for this week. But in the Gospel of John, we are um, in, the, in the part of the overarching narrative there where Jesus is most definitely making his way to Jerusalem. He's headed towards the cross, like all the things he's teaching, all the things he's saying, he's on his way. Uh, and right now, we're hap- this, is, this story is happening just before Passover, which is when you know, everything begins to take shape. Uh, and it's happening just after uh, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Of course, in John 11, we remember that Lazarus, who's the only person I think that's officially called Jesus' friend, uh, has died. And Jesus is late getting into town and does not heal him. And his two sisters, Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha, are distraught over this. And you'll remember from John 11, which we talked about not too long ago, that each one of them has this, you know, somewhat of a crisis with Jesus when he finally shows up because he's showed up late. And then they're saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And uh, Martha says that even now I know God will give you whatever you ask for, right? And then he goes to see Mary, and Mary says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she doesn't quite have that extra little bit of faith on the end of it. She just says, if you've been here, my brother would not have died. And it says that Jesus saw her weeping and saw those that were with her weeping, and Jesus wept. And then after Jesus wept with them, even though he knew everything was going to be okay, he wept with them. Then he raises Lazarus from the dead, right? So he has performed the the most stunning of miracles in front of this family, in the lives of this family. And then... um, this, uh, this story takes place where there's a, a meal given in Jesus' honor by those who he has kind of done this amazing miracle for. And so that's, that's what's happening here. Jesus, again, heading towards the cross. He's talking a lot about his own death and referring to it, although people don't seem to get it, especially in the book of John. Everything seems to miss everybody uh, when, he's, when Jesus is telling them things. Uh, but it says this in uh, 12, 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took, a, took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So just to give a little context, again, Lazarus is around the table with Jesus. Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sister, are there. Martha is serving. Mary takes out this jar of expensive perfume. We're going to learn later that it's probably a year's wage, average wage worth of perfume. So it's a lot of nice perfume. She takes this full pint of perfume. She pours it on Jesus' feet, and she wipes it with her hair. And this is, a, this is an unusual act. This is something that's going to catch everyone's attention for a lot of reasons. It's not just because a pint of perfume has been poured into the room, and so now it fills everyone's nostrils. Uh, this type of uh, perfume, this nard, is often used in burial. So obviously, Mary in some ways is starting to understand what Jesus is saying and doing. Even if none of the men in the room and none of the disciples have quite gotten it yet, she's starting to pick up on what's happening here. And so she pours out this expensive perfume all over his feet, and then she wipes it with her hair, which is strange, you might think. Why not grab a towel? I'm not sure, but also understand that in the culture, a woman's hair, and and to take it down like that in mixed company was a very immodest thing to do. 
Right? Women kept their hair up. They kept their hair covered. Uh, in fact, there's places in the Old Testament that talk about punishing a woman who may have committed adultery by like making her take down her hair in front of everyone and part of these kind of shaming things that, that go on. And so it was a bit of a shameful and scandalous act for her to take her hair down like that. It's a very intimate and vulnerable thing for her to do and then to wipe up this expensive perfume with her hair. Very immodest, humiliating maybe even, very vulnerable for her. Verse 4, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, quote, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. The beginning of that last sentence, you always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Is actually uh, The beginning of that is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. And the entire entirety of that, which they would have been familiar with when he said it, says there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. And I say that just because the poor will always be with you. And even Jesus saying it here has a lot of times in Christian history been used to justify not helping poor people. Oh, the poor will always be with you, right? That's not what, in fact, the context is the poor will always be with you in the land, therefore be open-handed. Jesus is not preaching against helping people who are in need. And in fact, the idea that the poor will always be with you indicates that you have poor people among you, which a lot of times those who have money don't want to give it don't have poor people among them. But in in this story, we see this this, uh, gratuitous act by Mary. We hear, we hear Judas raising an objection to it, although we know that it was not a genuine objection. We have Jesus defending the decision, talking about his burial. It's a very interesting story. And there are times uh, when I am very grateful for a narrator, right? which is what you see in the middle of this. There's a story, and then the narrator basically steps aside and goes, hey, just so you know, Judas doesn't really mean this. He's, he's going to you know, betray Jesus, and he's a thief, and he steals from the money bag, and you da 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 right? Sometimes you really need that narrator. I'm glad that narrator is here. I'm one of those people who really likes to know everything that's going on in a movie or in a show. I want to know the context because I'm the person that you don't want to sit next to because I'm going to try and figure it out and tell you ahead of time what's happening. Uh, my wife can attest to this. I've ruined many a TV series for her um, because I think I'm brilliant and I like to try and guess what it is, right? I'm constantly trying to piece together, guess what's coming next, and, and figure it out ahead of time. And the worst thing to me is when you get into some kind of movie and there is no context and there are no clues, you don't know anything, and so you have nothing to go on. I want some context. I'm, I'm one of those people that needs it, right? I think it's one of the reasons I liked like the Star Wars movies so much as a kid. I loved those movies, and those movies are kind of funny to me because of how they start. And the original Star Wars, which is the first one made, was actually part four, right? They end up going doing the prequels later, which of course were awful. Um, because I'm of a certain age where I have to be a purist on the, on the first ones. But, so you're starting out in chapter four, and I can only imagine them all sitting around and going, well, wait, we can't start in chapter four. No one's going to know what's going on. And George Lucas being like, no problem. I'm going to send like five paragraphs of text across the screen in the beginning, just disappearing into space with a great soundtrack. Everyone's going to love it. And people probably thought, that's the dumbest thing ever. But now we all know and love, that's the, that's the 
fun part of the beginning of Star Wars. That music kicks in, and then you have to you know, read a short book report. But we want that book report because it makes sense of everything else. Like, if you didn't have that part, if you didn't have the narrator stepping in and telling you what was going on, it would be hard to follow what the heck is going on. It's hard anyways in the Star Wars world, but it would be hard to follow it, right? And this is one of those kind of stories where I'm glad the omniscient narrator steps in and says something. And again, the narrator breaks in with some dialogue. He says this again in verse 5 and 6. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Verse 6, important, his narrator jumps in. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. I'm glad the narrator breaks in and tells us, reminds us that Judas is a villain, cannot be trusted. And I'm glad it's there because otherwise I would have a problem in coming into the story. And that problem is, I kind of agree with Judas. Like if you didn't tell me, oh, by the way, Judas is the bad guy, you can't agree with him. If like Peter or John had raised his hand and said, look, this is really nice, but like, you know how many people we could have fed with that? I probably would have been the person in the room going, eh, you make a good point. It's kind of wasteful. A year's wages. That's a lot, right? More for some of us, less for some of us. But on average, that's a lot of money, right? To just pour out onto someone's feet. I think if the narrator didn't tell me and tip the hand on who I'm supposed to agree with here, I would be conflicted. I'm against the whole stealing thing, obviously, but otherwise Judas might make a fair point here. It's honestly hard to argue that there could not be a better use of that money than just pouring it onto Jesus' feet and wiping it up with your hair. Now, that's not a question of Mary's sincerity for me. To do something like this in that culture in that time is obviously an overflow of something that she's feeling so strongly that she can't even seem to contain, right? I'm not questioning her sincerity, but if I'm honest, if I'd, and if I'd been in the room, I think I'd be uncomfortable with what was happening. If I'm just honest with you, I'm not sure. You may, I may be the only one in the room, and that's fine. Just, you know, I'm sitting with Judas. It's cool. I think I would have been uncomfortable. But Jesus clearly endorses what Mary does here. And he endorses it for reasons that don't really fit onto a spreadsheet or make sense in purely logical terms. Jesus endorses it. And I think it's supposed to make us uncomfortable. I think it's supposed to make us ask some questions. But it really shouldn't be a surprise to us that Jesus endorses this. I mean, if you've been paying attention at all, Jesus is obviously a fan of recklessly stupid generosity. Jesus is very in favor of this, right? He constantly tells stories that look and act a whole lot like what Mary is doing in this situation. The shepherd leaves the 99 and seeks the one. The man finds a treasure, buries it back in the field, sells everything he has, and buys the field. A king forgives a debt of a man who has borrowed more than he could ever pay back. A landowner pays all the workers the same, whether they showed up first thing in the morning or right before the end of the day. Or as we talked about last week, a father gives an inheritance early to his youngest ne'er-do-well son and then throws a party for him when he comes back, having wasted every bit of it. Jesus is a fan of reckless, stupid generosity. 
The entire story of incarnation in Christ is a story of this kind of generosity, right? The creator of all things does not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but make himself nothing, become obedient even unto death on a cross. God becomes a human and dies on our behalf. It is all recklessly generous, all of it. None of it makes sense on a purely logical level. But honestly, given the recent event in the lives of those who are involved here, you might better ask, why isn't everybody doing something this bold? Right? Mary had her faith deeply challenged when Jesus did not show up in time to heal her brother. She has a crisis of faith in Jesus in that moment. She watched as Jesus didn't take issue with her questions about his tardiness and instead wept with her and those who were grieving. She witnessed Jesus literally resurrect her dead brother. And now that same brother is reclining at the table and eating with the guy who raised him from the dead. The same guy who's talking about his own death all the time now. You could argue the only logical response to any of this is something embarrassingly vulnerable and recklessly generous. What else makes sense? What else could she do? Right, what, if the, what if the last hour workers took their full day's pay and said, meh, and walked off? What if the younger brother didn't even dance at his party, right? What if the younger brother spent the rest of his life on his dad's property being very careful and calculating about how nice he was to the servants that were in the house? What if the man who was forgiven a fortune tried to choke out a neighbor that owed him a couple bucks? Oh, wait, we know the answer to that one. We know how that goes in the story, right? The forgiven man now finds himself imprisoned instead of freed by the generosity he received. Grace and love like they have received warrants a reckless response. How could Mary not pour out all of the best that she had? And this act of reckless generosity, this, la this act of really pouring oneself out, has a way of telling the truth about everyone in the room, right? In this story, the person who is most troubled by it is the person we most want to distance ourselves from. And that is something to consider, especially for people like me who can kind of understand the argument. Because it's safe to say we are still somewhat scandalized by the gratuitous nature of Christ's love and our response to it. I wonder sometimes if we haven't become a little too measured in our response. If we haven't gotten so good at building institutions, at doing church, at organizing our faith that we become a little too measured in the things we talk about. I think the song said it's one of those things where you start to sing those things and you think, how can I not smile a little bit and maybe even try to clap on beat to words like that? Do we really believe these things? Now, I'm not saying that we should be reckless in the sense that we have no accountability for that which we have been entrusted, right? God seems to be a pretty big fan of wisdom in Scripture as well. I'm not advocating for untethered idiocy. 
which I'm considering as a name for my future autobiography. But we should consider how measured we have gotten. I'm not sure if what we call wisdom and call being responsible isn't often just a lack of generosity or a failure to remember the gratuitous nature of God's love and giving towards us. Because vulnerable generosity just isn't our natural impulse all the time, isn't it? We have this deep-seated selfishness or sense of scarcity or need to control that inhibits us acting the way people who have been given what we have been given should be acting in the world. I used to make uh, anyone who was like asking for money on the street, if I gave them anything, I used to make them promise me what they would do with that money and wouldn't do. Until I had friends who used to live on the street talk to me about that. I somehow wanted to control it. I wanted to measure it out, make sure I wasn't taken advantage of. I wanted to, to be able to give without being vulnerable. I had a conversation this week with uh, my cousin, actually, who had recently left a church that they really loved. She left because uh, she'd been listening to the teachings and then she had befriended uh, this uh, 17 turning 18 year old who was in the foster system. Kind of taken the boy under her wing a little bit and tried to kind of mentor him a little bit and befriend him because he did, literally didn't have a family of his own. And when Christmas came, uh, she approached the church about giving some money so that she could do, let him do some Christmas shopping because that's not something he ever got to do. And they said yes, and they gave $100. And so she took that $100, and she gave it to him, and she said, go and buy something for Christmas. You know, give him a little taste of what a lot of people get to feel for Christmas. And so he went out, and he got clothes. And then when he wore those clothes to church, uh, the church thought they looked a little too feminine for a boy, and they started asking questions. And then they ostracized the young man that she was trying to bring into the church and bring into the community, the you know, kind of things she thought she was doing uh, that they had been teaching her to do. They had to measure it out. They had to somehow control the gift after it was given. We all got a little bit of that in us, don't we? But imagine if that was not what we were known for. Fortunately, it often is, but imagine a world where people of faith were known for being outrageously generous. Where we so fundamentally were affected by God's generosity towards us that we couldn't help but follow suit. Imagine a world where 12 to 2 on a Sunday afternoon was the best time to get tips as a server at a restaurant instead of the worst, which I'm told by servers it universally is known to be. Imagine churches who were a little less responsible with how they spent or saved their money. Churches and people of faith who are more generous than they were measured. I pray that I will be that kind of person. I pray that we will be that kind of church. It doesn't come easy, but what other logical response is there to the things we sing about each week? Maybe we can take a few moments tonight to reflect on the embarrassing way Mary gives and let it shine a light on our own hearts. Are we absurdly, outrageous, vulnerably generous in this world? Does the way we spend our money or our time or our love or our energy make any sense apart from faith 
in something as nonsensical as a God who allows himself to be put on a cross? Is the way we expend our resources really governed by wisdom? Maybe it is, and that's great. Or are we really Judas in this scenario? Coming up with great reasons for moderation that are only thinly covering our own selfishness or fear of vulnerability. Who are we? Are we as generous as we should be with our money and our time and our love? Do we give as we have been given to? Now, I don't want to be cliche, but I want to end this sermon with, with a sentence that I'm sure you've heard a million times. Maybe, at least every once in a while, you should just let down your hair and dump out all the nard for Jesus. Because sometimes nothing else really makes sense. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that we are the recipients of exorbitant love. We are grateful that the king has forgiven us of our great debts. We are grateful that we have showed up in the last hour and still gotten paid for the entire day. We are grateful that we showed back up empty-handed and you threw a party for us that we wandered away and you left 99 to bring us back. We are grateful that your love defies logic. God, may we not accept that for ourselves without offering it to each other. May we not calmly eat a meal around the table with the king of the universe and the one he has resurrected and not be moved to something big, audacious, and vulnerable. God, give us the courage to love as we have been loved. We ask all this in your name. Amen.